You are listening to the Fur Road Christian Church Podcast. Our mission is to love God and love people. For more information about Fur Road, visit furroadcc.org. That is F-I-R-R-O-A-D-C-C.org. Now for this week's message. So what do we have in terms of prayer? When we come together collectively, what are some different elements that we should include in a prayer that is going to impact us personally, but also impact the nation? I want us to start with the place that they start. If you look at Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 1, their heart and their attitude is one that we should emulate as we come together as we seek to ask for God to restore, for God to revive, to God to start to build the blocks for what we need to do next. We see this heart and this attitude of humility. In verse 1, it says this, The children of Israel were assembled with fasting and with sackcloth and the earth upon them. This idea of the sackcloth was this public and personal display of the fact that they were in a place of humility. They would wear these things that weren't so comfortable. They would have this attitude of humility to remind themselves that they need to be lower and that God need to be raised up. It's a way of humbling themselves before God to seek his wisdom, to seek his guidance, to seek his truth. Not only did they have the sackcloth and ashes as they're gathered together, they'd been fasting After they'd gone through a feast, they make this intentional decision that they are going to focus their lives on God. So many times, powerful prayers are preceded by fasting. We saw Nehemiah do it before he approached the king. And here again, this idea of coming before and fasting before they do this gathering once again. We see this preparation of their hearts. They're taking this seriously. It's not some flippant, you know, hey, it's like a concert. We're going to show up. We're going to have a good time. They're going to read some cool things. They are in this 100%. They're fully committed to the outcome of whatever they are challenged to do. And really, that is the place that we should oftentimes get ourselves Sometimes we need to have that reverence. Sometimes we need to have that humility. But all the time, we need to have that reverence for who God is and who we are in his kingdom. Because as we see this idea and we go through this prayer, and again, I wish that we could read through every verse. We see it start in verse 2. It says this, And the seed of Israel separated themselves from all the strangers, and they stood and they confessed their sins and iniquities of their fathers. When we come before God, it's important to understand where we are and who we are. They were separating themselves from all these other people. They knew, as they had learned before, that they were a chosen nation that they were to be separate, they were to be holy, they were to be different. And so they're making this intentional approach to put themselves in a different category, to not be influenced by the outside, but to focus solely on the inside and allow God to change their hearts. And that begins with the confessing of their sins. True prayer of confession always results in a separation from our sin. That's what takes place in this verse. And when we come before God and we gather before him and we pray to him, that is always the first step. Because we have sin in our hearts, 
we all know that sin separates us from God. So how are we going to draw near to him if our hearts are far from him? How are we going to be close to him if we have distractions in the way? How are we going to be holy like him? How are we going to be able to go into his presence if there's dirt on our hearts? So that is our heart. That is our mindset as we come before this. The nation of Israel sets that example for us that they understood that they were chosen by God to be a special people separated from the pagan nations around them and those influences were heavy sometimes but they understood that in this pivotal moment they needed to be different they needed to start something new they needed to start something righteous they needed to rely on their relationship with God one that had grown distance one that had grown troubled one that they had understood was full of regrets you see them confessing the sins of their fathers. They understood what got them in this place. They understood why the exile had happened. They understood that it was the sins of their fathers, even though they didn't personally commit them. It was a result of hardened hearts. It was a result of conflict, of, of denying God, of going and chasing after other things, of allowing the influences of other nations to influence them that caused this distance, and they wanted to get right with God again. So they confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And in this day, in this moment, as the nation of Israel gathers together to pray, we see some profound things happen. As we read through this passage, and if you read through this prayer, you see this interweaving of two different stories, of different sources and different ideas. On one side, you have the golden thread of the things that God does. The way that he weaves in and out of history, the way that he provides this light and this joy and this hope throughout the darkness of Israel. So you have his golden thread of hope interwoven with the dark thread of the nation of Israel. One that has a history of, of turning away from God, of rejecting God, of betraying God, of breaking promises. And through it, this interweaving of these two. This contradiction of, like Dan said, faithfulness and faithlessness. The people of Israel understood that the failure of the, was their problem. It wasn't something new to them. As they came before this God, as they came before Ezra, as they became before God's word, they understood that the failure was their problem. This prayer, as we read through, mentions the fact that there are 20 different sins of Israel that they proclaim, that they admit, that they are willing to confess before God. That's just a start, if you really want to be honest, as you read through the Old Testament. 20 sins isn't very much, but we could all come up with that on our own. Israel's depth of sin was so much deeper than that, but in this passage, there's 20 that they bring to light. And if you understand what sin is, it means to miss the mark. It's whenever we are trying to be holy, we're trying to pursue God, where we're trying to be righteous, when we're trying to be holy, we're trying to be gracious, we're trying to be merciful, we're trying to live out the fruit of the Spirit, and we just miss. And you know, the thing with sin is we can be right 19 out of 20 times, but that 20 time makes us a sinner still. And there's so many of us in our lives where maybe we do things right most of the time. But there's always those times that we slip up. 
There's always those times that we miss the mark. And if you look at the history of Israel with their kings who hit the mark and their kings who missed the mark, we see both sides in their nation. We see prophets who rise up and prophets who fall down. But in this journal of human failure, we see that sin is this dark thread that runs throughout Scripture. Sin is mentioned over 600 times in Scripture in relation to people. Sin is something that is woven throughout the fabric of the Scriptures and inside our hearts and inside our lives. We sin so much. God has provided ways for us not to, but we consistently and constantly miss the mark. When we're living through our lives, this is something that we need to evaluate. This is something that we need to assess and understand and come before God, understanding that failure is a problem that we all face. Failure is something that we all experience. Sin is something that we all have in our lives that we need to confess. And Nehemiah 9.17 really kind of personifies one of the highlights of these 20 mentions. In verse 17, it says this, They refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. They became stiff-necked and their rebellion appointed a leader in order for them to return to their slavery. The context for that, of course, is after the Israelites are, are freed from slavery. They have this God who is in them and before them. They're following in the day and in the night. He is doing miracles. He parts the Red Seas. He is showing to them who he is, that he is greater than any of the gods that they are already worshiping or know. But they get to this point where so, so quickly they fail. They turn their hearts back to what they used to know. They turn their hearts to complaining and grumbling. They, time and time again, rebel against God and the leaders that he puts in their place. We can all relate to sin because we do the same thing. We can go from a spiritual high and the next day or the next week or maybe even the next hour, we fail and we fall. We all understand this truth so well. That failure is a problem that we deal with. As we try to walk with God, we stand on hilltops where the air is clear. We see in all directions. We rejoice. We praise. Life is good. But then other times, we're standing waist deep in mire with fog around us and we're wondering where we're going as we bump into thing after thing and we get tripped up by sin after sin. We can all admit that our sins cause problems and cause failures in our lives. They cause things in our lives to suffer, and sometimes it gets to the point where things just seem bleak if we are surrounded by this hopelessness. And when we refuse to listen and fail to remember the things that God does in our lives, because we've all seen miracles, we've all followed God in different ways, but it's easy to get off the path and become distracted. That dark thread runs thick through us all. But there is hope. Because like I said, there's the dark thread and then there's the golden thread. The lifeline that God gives to us. And the Israelites understood this as well as anybody in their history. And in verse 17b, the second part, after they talk about their refusal to listen, there's that word, but... It's powerful, it's transformative. 
but you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. That's who God is. That is his hope. Despite our failures, he is faithful. He's a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Because even in this prayer, there's 20 things that we fail at. There's 74 facts about God that they praise, that God is a subject matter in this prayer as they gather together, they admit their failures, but then they admire God's greatness. It deals with who he is and what he does for his people and what they, his people can do for him. The promises that God gives to them. And the thing that we learn through this prayer of these Israelites as they are there trying to start something new is that forgiveness is our provision. That God will provide forgiveness to us. Because even though we fail, God is the one who can forgive. When our failure meets his forgiveness, our penchant for sin meets his pardon for sin. Say that again. Our penchant for sin meets his pardon for sin. God's ability to forgive our sins overcomes any of the sins that we commit. Even though we fail, God is bigger than our failure. He, in fact, expected and anticipated our failure. His sin failure was never a surprise to God. I think sometimes we struggle with the sin that we're dealing with, right? We fail and we fail and we fail again. And we feel like, how many times is God going to forgive me? And though we can't take advantage of it, it's something that we need to be reminded of, that when we ask for God to become our Savior, He knows every single sin we're already going to commit. And He's already forgiven us for all of those sins. God's grace covers all of those things. His forgiveness is our provision in our life. It allows us to do things that we can't do when we confess to God our sins and we allow God to change our lives. We experience new and wonderful things. We can come to God and sing praises that we can't before. We can connect to God through his word in ways that we didn't experience before. We can have the Holy Spirit indwell in our lives and be empowered to do things that we could never do before. To experience miracles that we never thought was possible. Because God is a God that is bigger than our failure. He's bigger than our sins. And he's a God who's willing to forgive and provide for our greatest needs. He is faithful to the end, from the beginning, and through it all. Through all of our messes, if we are willing to come to him, and we are able to confess the things that he is going to do in our lives, it can impact our heart, it can change our trajectory, and we can experience some things that God promises to us. Because God is a mighty and powerful God. He is bigger than our failures. But he also has some promises that we want to be reminded of. And in this time of gathering together, as Ezra is reading through this, he wanted to remind the nation of Israel of some promises that God had made to them. Even though they had broken many of them, God was still faithful. And God reminds us that he is always faithful through his promises. 
One of the most powerful and wonderful things that we're going to talk about a little bit more next week is the covenant of God, his covenant promises, his covenant that he keeps. It's this idea that God has told us something and he's not going to change that. Despite what we do, despite how we might let him down, despite our failures, God is going to be faithful in his promises. And as you read through this prayer, Israel is reminded of God's faithfulness to his promises. If you read through this passage, we see that God called Abraham and made a covenant with his descendants. We see this promise that God delivered them from their captivity in Egypt, that God promised and spoke the law on Mount Sinai, that God provided manna and water and miracles, that God gave them powerful victories over insurmountable enemies, and that God in his prime, in his character, was the hero that allowed them to rise above all other nations around they understood that God was a God who kept his promises. We see that they acknowledge that in 928. And again, they do it in other places too. But I just want to highlight on this one too. In verse 9, 28 of chapter 9, it says this. But as soon as they were at rest, they again did what was evil in your sight. Then you abandoned them in the hand of their enemies so that they would rule over them. And when they cried out to you again, you heard from the heavens. In your compassion, you delivered them time after time. If that doesn't offer us hope, I don't know what is. To understand that God is a God of compassion. That even in our darkest, deepest times, we can always come and call to him. That is one of God's promises that he will always be compassionate with us. I think in our lives, sometimes we face the harshness of people and we forget the gentleness of God. He is someone that loves us deeply, who will always be compassionate and like a loving father waiting there with his welcoming arms to help us be able to experience the things that he wants to. The Israelites understood that God delivered them even when they didn't deserve it. They knew that past generations had deceived and denied God. But still, they had the opportunity to come before them on that day and still receive the compassion that God had been waiting for them to accept. Nehemiah 9.31 says this, But in your great mercy, you did not put an end to them or abandon them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. So not only does God promise to be compassionate, something else that we learn from God as we pray to God in our failures is that God is a God who will promise to show us mercy. And that is something that as we confess our sins to him, we can understand that even when our sins are at our worst, God will eventually hold back the full weight of his discipline. He doesn't want to judge us. He doesn't want to condemn us. He doesn't want to. He's not waiting there to send us into the pit of hell. He is the opposite of that. He wants to grant us and show us mercy. He's asking for us to come to him and plead for that. If we do that, if we humble ourselves, he is a God who is merciful we see time and time again where he shows us example of his mercy that never ends. One of the prime examples that we see lived out in the Old Testament is that of the life of Hosea. 
who God does this weird thing. He tells Hosea to go and marry this woman who is going to betray him, who's going to cheat on him, who's going to prostitute herself out. And God tells Hosea to marry her out of all the different people. And when she does what she naturally does and fails in that relationship, God tells Hosea, go get her again. And again, she fails and runs and flees and goes to the passions of her flesh. And God again says, go get her again. Have mercy and compassion on her. It's his wonderful illustration of how he views and pursues us. That despite our you know, choices that we make, despite maybe how we prostitute ourselves out to the sins of the world, God will be there for us time and time again to show us his mercy. There's nothing that he won't forgive. There's nothing that he won't heal. And his promise for us is that he will always be compassionate and he will always be merciful. So we read this next verse, we see in 32 and 33, something else that God promises. It says, now therefore our God, the great God, mighty and awesome, who keeps his covenant of love, do not let all this hardship seem trifling in your eyes. The hardship that has come on us, on our kings and our leaders and our priests and our prophets, on our ancestors and all your people from the days of the kings of Assyria until today. And all that has happened, and that's quite the list, right? In all that has happened to us, you have remained righteous and you have acted faithfully while we acted wickedly. God promises to be gracious. He says he'll be compassionate. He says he'll be merciful. And he says that he will be gracious. God realizes that he is gracious and he has this idea of being and extending grace and mercy to us. An illustration of, of grace and mercy might look something like this. Let's say that you are driving. Uh, I don't know if I'll pick on anybody, but I'm sure we have some people that drive a little faster than they're supposed to, right? You see that radar gun and you see how fast you can make it blink, right? Uh, we have some of those people in here who maybe would do that. And unfortunately, when you do things like that, you get caught sometimes, right? So grace and mercy is when you do that, you get caught in that, the cop pulls you over and he comes up to the door and he knocks on your window and you know you realize that you're caught and so you humble yourself and you apologize and say, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were there, otherwise I would have sped faster, right? Something like that idea. Uh, and then he says, you know what? I'm going to extend grace I'm going to allow you to not have this speeding ticket. I'm going to take it off. I'm not going to write it for you. You can go. If we want mercy in that, that would look like this. He still writes you the ticket, but instead of you paying for it, he takes his wallet out, he takes the money, and he pays for your ticket and hands it to you. Grace and mercy. God has taken our sins, and he has paid for them with his son. He took it upon himself to be our payment for the things that we do wrong. We understand that through that, that God promises to always love us. See his goodness and his mercy and his amazing grace. You have to go to the well of God's word, not merely to see your reflection in his waters, but to draw upon them to become refreshed by God. 
So we come to God every day, and hopefully you read his word every day, and hopefully you pray every day as you go and you try to build your relationship with God, that you look to him, you adore him, you see him, you admire him, you understand the different things that he has promised, and you receive them. In our lives, we should always be in this loving pursuit and remind ourselves that at God's ethos, at the center of all he is, he is love. We see that in the most famous passage of the Bible, John 3, 16, that God is love. And while our love is sometimes tainted and skewed because human love is object-oriented, God's divine love is subject-oriented and based on God's character, not ours. God loves us because he is God and God is love. His love is reckless and it pursues us. We can't run away from it. We can't hide it. He is always going to show it to us. And the amazing thing is that we can keep running, but God will keep chasing. We can be that like that lost sheep that goes off in the wilderness, but he's going to come and find us. He's going to take us up. He's going to love us and help us to experience and be part of his family once again. God's patience and his promises don't have a limit. There's no sin that we can erect that will not, God's grace won't flow over or flow through. But it really starts with our hearts and our willingness to admit our failures and say that we have sinned against him and that we want to receive his compassion. We want to receive his mercy. We want to receive his grace. We want to receive his love. If we do that, we can experience something that we can't find anywhere else. We can have this relationship with God that is profound, that is powerful. And if we experience it and get a taste of it and see that it is good, once we start down that journey and we share that with the people around us, if we come together and share in that together and experience God's grace, his love, his mercy collectively, it's even more profound. It's even more powerful. If we extend that love to each other as God has extended it to us, it allows us to experience him in powerful ways. And really as a church, one of the things that we want to do is to make our honor, make our respect, make our love, make our pursuit of God our priority. Following God should be our priority in everything we do. As we see and read passages like this, we should understand that our response and our failure is met by his forgiveness and his faithfulness. And that we have the opportunity to follow him in ways that nobody else has. If we're able to come to him and reveal to him our humbleness and appreciate his faithfulness, then we can have a changed life. So maybe as you evaluate your life, what priority do you place God in that? Where is he on your relationship scale? Is he at the top? Is he in the middle? Is he at the bottom? Sometimes it changes. But I want us to understand and see God in a new light. If you don't already see him as someone who is gracious, if you don't already see him as someone who is merciful, if you don't already see him as righteous, if you don't already see him as loving, allow him to change your life today.
If you haven't heard or believed God's promises today, maybe you feel like your failures have limited your relationship with God or prevented you from being able to do the things God wants you to do now and going forward, I would encourage you to take time to confess, to take time to humble yourself, to take time to put God as a priority in your life. Wake up to him and sing his praises. Go to bed and pray to him. If you want to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you want his love to be in part of your ethos as well, I would ask that you would take the time to pray. And we'll have this time of invitation later, this song that we'll play as our worship team comes up. And in that time, if you don't know how to do any of that, we would encourage you or ask you to come forward or go to our elders or one of our deacons so that we can help you understand the steps that it takes to have God as your loving Savior and the Lord of your life. That's for our individuals. And like I said, this passage was about the collective. And as a church that we are striving to be a church that God wants us to be, One of the things that we've been talking about is praying and planning and trying to start a revival. I think revival begins in individual hearts, but our longing is to see and spread it throughout the church and for us to be collectively in his presence. And just like the Israelites stood that day and prayed together, I want us to do that together today to stand together and pray together. And so I found a a prayer uh, online that I just thought would be fitting and that we could read together. So to kind of conclude this service, would you all just stand with me? I think that we can get the words on there. Hopefully we can read that. Hopefully you can see that. But I just want us to collectively say this prayer together. Join with me. Father, Thank you for loving us so much that you sent your only son, Jesus, to die for us and rise to life eternal. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. We acknowledge that we are sinners and that we rely on Jesus for salvation and eternal life. We confess that we have fallen short of our calling in Christ and have wandered from our first love. Forgive us in Jesus' name. It is in his name alone we come boldly to ask for a fresh outpouring of your spirit. Revive our hearts, renew our spirits, restore our joy, refresh our zeal to love and serve the world that you came to save. In Jesus' name, amen.